if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We started a, a new series on Ephesians last week, and that's where we're going to be for uh, the next nine weeks uh, as we look at the Bible here this morning. Uh, the, the, the date in time was November 1982, uh, and it was the last, or last game in the regular season uh, for the Stanford Cardinals uh, and the California Golden Bears in the college football season. The, the game was kind of back and forth uh, until uh, the Cardinals kicked a field goal with four seconds left to go up 20 to 19. The, the game was essentially over uh, until what became probably one of the most famous plays in college football history happened. What's become known simply as the play. Uh, the, the Stanford Cardinals kicked off the ball, and, and a Cal player received the ball and started to run back. And in the midst of him running back, the Stanford band ran out onto the field because they thought the game was over, creating a type of chaotic scene that enabled this player from Cal to ultimately run it back, get into the end zone, and win the game as time ran out. Now, perhaps just as famous as the actual play is the, the announcer who was calling the play. He was a guy by the name of Joe Starkey, and here's how he called this play as he was watching it in real time. I don't have a great announcer voice, so you'll just have to imagine for a moment. He says, Rogers along the sideline. They're still in deep trouble in midfield. They try to do a couple laterals. The ball is still loose. They give it to Rogers. They get it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going into the end zone. He's gone into the, oh, the Bears. The Bears have won. The Bears have won. And then he says, the most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heart-rending, exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football. Maybe you think he's overstating his case a little bit as he says that. But what, what, what was Joe Starkey doing in that moment as he called this play? He was doing what every sports announcer ultimately exists to do, to marvel at something that's taking place in front of him in the game to delight in it and praise it and to lead others who are watching this game to delight in it and praise it. Th this morning, we're, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. This is the, the, the second longest sentence in the Bible. The, the longest sentence, I think, is actually in a genealogy in Luke. I don't, I don't know if that counts or not. But this is actually just one long sentence, though it's broken up in, in our translations into different sentences. A and, and we could compare... Paul here as he writes to a play-by-play -play announcer in some ways, that he is stepping back and looking at the greatness of our salvation, of what God's done to save us, and he can barely catch his breath as more words just pop out, as he delights in and praises God for all he's done in saving us, and as he leads everyone who would read him or listen to him to delight and praise in God as well. I, I think one of the reasons, maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons we may go throughout this life at many times struggling with joy, struggling to have joy in our lives, or, or lacking a desire to praise God in our lives, is because we have failed to understand or have forgotten just how great our salvation is and what God's done for us in Christ. And, and Paul writes this very long sentence so that we might be amazed. 
whether for the first time or the thousandth time, about the greatness of what God has done in saving us and that we might respond in delight and praise of him. Because the greatness of our salvation should ultimately lead us to delight and praise, or we might say joy and worship. That's the the big idea for this morning. Just, Just as a sports announcer exists to delight and praise in the game that he is watching, you and I exist. The very reason we have breath this morning is to delight in and praise the God who has made us and who has ultimately saved us. And so let's listen to Paul as he describes the, the greatness of our salvation in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, we ask that you would help us to see, marvel, delight in what you've done for us in saving us. And that as a result, it might uh, free our lips, hearts, and lives to live in praise of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul repeats this one phrase multiple times in this passage. Actually, there's several that he repeats. But one that he keeps going back to is this. The praise of his glory. Describing something that God has done for us in saving us and then saying, he did it for the purpose of the praise of his glory. And and we should notice, God doesn't just save us to display his glory. He saves us so that we might actually praise and enjoy his glory. John, John Piper said it this way. He says, God's goal is not simply that the glory of his perfections shine, but that we find God's glory praiseworthy. And and the greater something is, the more we tend to delight in it and praise it. Maybe for a moment, you can just imagine yourself or picture yourself sitting around a table and being brought out course after course of food from a world-renowned chef. First, you get an appetizer, 
and it's fantastic. Then you get a soup, and it's the best soup you've ever tasted. Then you get a main plate, and you think, why have I never had this before? And then you get a dessert, and you're like, this, this is wonderful. Every single course being one of the best things you've ever tasted. You, you and I, in that instance, likely wouldn't or shouldn't simply say, this food is incredible, although we would say that, but would also be led to say, this chef is incredible. He makes the most amazing food. In, in Ephesians 3, 1 through 14, we, we see three different angles, we might say, to our salvation, or, or three different courses that we're invited to dig into, meditate on, to understand how great it is that God has saved us and what he's done for us. And, and all of these spiritual blessings, as Paul describes them, are ours if we are united together with Jesus by faith, if we're trusting in him. That's why over and over again, you might have caught, Paul says, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. It, it's because of Jesus we enjoy these things. And maybe you also saw that our salvation involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together for the purpose of blessing us and saving us. And, and what we find is with each blessing, we get the joy of being saved. And God ultimately should get the praise, the honor, the glory as being the one who saves us. And so with, with each of these angles, we want to ask maybe two questions. The, the first being, what is the spiritual blessing or gift God has given us in Christ? And then how does that gift display God's glory and lead us to praise him? Or, or another way to put that is we want to look at each of these angles, both from our vantage point and then also turn and look at it from God's vantage point. And, and so let's start with, with the first angle that we find in verses 3 through 6, that we have been chosen by the Father. Sometimes we probably or maybe cringe shouldn't say probably. Sometimes we might cringe when we hear words like election and predestination because maybe our minds immediately jump into all sorts of debates related to these things. But we should always, first of all, recognize the, the Bible or, or ultimately that these are Bible words. Right? So we, we, we can't just say, well, I don't believe in predestination because it's a, it's a Bible word. We, we may disagree about what that means, but we have to come to grips with what, why is it in there? What's God saying about this? Tony Meredith says the, the Bible is a book of election. And that's true if we stop to think about it, right? God chose Noah to save in his family. God chose Abraham. God, God chose Jacob rather than Esau. God chose the Israelites rather than the surrounding nations at that time. God chose David to be king rather than the rest of his brothers. Jesus chose his 12 disciples out of a group of disciples. And in Ephesians 1 and other places, we're told that God chose in advance who he would save. I, I take election and predestination as we read about in a passage like this to mean that God chose who he would save before he even created the world. Because we're told when God made this choice, before the foundation of the world, and we're told what, why God made that choice, for the purpose of the praise of his glorious grace. That, that, this means it, if you're a Christian who's believing in Jesus' day as your Lord and Savior, Savior the, the reason for that that's behind all other reasons is this. 
God chose you before he created the world. Now, that, that, that does not take away the responsibility we as humans have to repent and believe the gospel. Because even in this passage, Paul's going to talk about the Ephesians hearing the word of truth, the gospel, and believing in Christ in verse 13. And so neither does it take away the responsibility we have to proclaim the gospel, knowing that God uses human means to save people as we preach Christ and tell of what he's done. We, we aren't diving into the intricacies of election and predestination in the sermon to try to figure out well, how does God's will and our will kind of come together. That, that, that's maybe for a different sermon or, or a different conversation. But I do think we should recognize no matter how we try to explain that, there's going to be mystery. Like at some point you just have to step back and say, I can't fully grasp it because God is bigger than me and better than me. We're, we're simply trying to take what, what Paul says at face value here in Ephesians to recognize that if we are Christians, the root of our salvation lies in the free choice of God before the world even began. Now, I, I should be honest here and say, I, I didn't always believe this as a Christian. I, I would say there, there was times that where I was, when I, after I was a Christian where I, I just pushed against that. No, no, that can't be, right? It, and maybe that's some of you here this morning too where you, you disagree with this. That's, that's okay. Well, I, God used in my own life uh, books like Ephesians and Romans and the Gospel of John and then lots of interaction with other people to ultimately change what, what I believe here. And, and I would just say that election and predestination went from being in my own mind and heart, maybe like the, the sound of fingernails scraping against a chalkboard, to being the sweetest and most beautiful music that my ears could hear. And, and I want to just kind of lay out why that is, hopefully in accordance with this passage. Because to be chosen by God, first of all, to be chosen by God is an incredible honor and privilege. To be chosen by God is an incredible honor and privilege. To be chosen by someone for something else is usually an honor or privilege. But, but we should stop and recognize there, it matters who we are chosen by. Right? It matters who is doing the choosing of us. Maybe you can just think of a kind of silly image with me for a moment here. Think, think of the image of caddying for someone else as they play golf. That you get to carry their bags and walk with them as they play golf. If I came up to you and I said, hey, I'm going to be playing a game of golf this weekend, and I choose you to be my caddy, that would be more of a punishment than a privilege, right? Like, it, w- it wouldn't be that great. Like, uh, no thanks. But if, if Tiger Woods called you up and said, hey, I'm going to be playing a round of golf this weekend, and I choose you to be my caddy, Man, that would be an incredible privilege, right? I, I get to walk the course with Tiger Woods and talk with him and carry, hold his clubs? Yes! See, it, it matters who we're chosen by. And, and who are we chosen by according to Paul in this passage? The, the creator of all things. He spoke it all into existence, upholds it with the word of his power. The one, the one who rules sovereign over heaven and earth and all history. Paul says he works all things, big and small, according to the counsel of his will. The one who is infinitely rich, right? Rich in grace, lavishes it upon his people. There is no greater person in the universe who we could be chosen by than God himself. But then we might also recognize what matters, what position we're being chosen for as well. 
When I was a, a sixth grader, I, I tried out for our middle school basketball team, and I was chosen to be the team manager. Yeah, that wasn't really an honor. That was a kind of disappointment. It would have been a far greater honor if I was chosen to be the, the starting point guard of the team. What, what, what position are we chosen for, according to Paul in this passage? That we've been chosen and predestined to be God's sons. It's only sons there because the idea of being a firstborn son with all the rights and privileges that come with that, that's what we're given because God chooses us. And, and Paul points out that that means we're called to live a holy and blameless life, which he's going to hit on in Ephesians 4 through 6. But we just should recognize here, there is no greater position in the universe outside of God himself than to be in the position of being God's son. There is no greater privilege than to be able to look up at the one who created all things and rules over all things and say, Father, Dad. Like, that, that should just regularly stun us. That we get to call God our Father and he cares for us like sons and daughters. In this life, there may be many times where we feel cast aside, unimportant, overlooked, unloved, or rejected. Or there may be many times where we miss out on the gifts and privileges of this life. Right? We, we don't make some team. We get cut. We, we don't get chosen for the promotion. Or we don't get the job. Or the relationship ends, and we didn't choose to, to end it. And, and in all those moments and more, it can be a great comfort to remember and rejoice in the fact that if your faith is in Christ, God has chosen chosen you. And, and there's no greater privilege. There, there, there's no better person in the world that could choose us and no better position in the world than that we could be chosen to be God's sons. Now, now I think too often that's where we can stop, but we need to turn and look at this from God's angle as well. Because for God to choose us or God's choice of us is a stunning display of his glorious grace. God's economy of choice doesn't work or operate like human economy of choice. Here's what I mean about that. Think about how we choose other people or how we're chosen in this life. Most often, it's we prove our worth and value, and then we get chosen as a result of that. For a sports team, for a college, for a job, for a date, and so much more. You prove your worth and then you get chosen as a result of proving your worth and proving yourself. In, in God's economy, he does not choose us because we are valuable or worthy. He chooses us to display the value and worth of his grace and love. Like God's choice of us does not ultimately demonstrate our greatness. It demonstrates how great his love and grace is. Which maybe sounds like bad news at first, but man, it's really, really good news. Because do you know, stop and think, do you know when God started loving you according to this passage? You know when God started loving you? Not when you were born, not when you took your first steps, not when you memorized your first Bible verse. Not when you put your faith in Christ. 
Not, not when you started coming to church. Not when you started serving in ministry. No, God has started to love you before the foundation of the world when he chose you and I in Christ. Apart from anything we did, have done, or ever will do in our lives. Ellie and Drew Holcomb sing, sing a song called Mine about their children. And the chorus goes like this. They say, before I held you, I knew I loved you. Before I saw you, I was sold out for you. I was writing lullabies before I ever heard your cry. I've been here the whole time. You always have, you always will be mine. Do you realize that's the type of love God has for us in Christ? Not because of anything we've done, any worth in us, but because of his free choice to love us in Christ. Which should leave us then saying, why me? Why would God choose me? Which is exactly where election is meant to lead us to. To a position of humble delight and praise in God. Charles Spurgeon says, election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. We, we should simultaneously be left saying, why me? And how great is our God? You see, a, a election creates in us both a delight and humility and a praise and worship of God. Be, being a Christian and belonging to the church is a cause for humble delight and worship. If being a Christian and belonging to the church becomes a source of spiritual pride in us, because we're in and others are out, then we have missed it. Because election and predestination cut the legs off of our pride and yet leave us singing as we fall to the ground in worship over a God who would choose us despite how unworthy and unloving we are in and of ourselves. That, that we have been chosen by God should be caused to delight and overflow with praise for him. And we can continue on to look at the second angle. We, we've been redeemed by the Son. After talking about our election in verses 3 through 6, Paul, Paul next moves on to talk about our redemption in verses 7 through 10. Redemption carries this idea of being set free from bondage and slavery to sin and Satan. And so we could look at Colossians chapter 1, a letter that Paul wrote about the same time as Ephesians and likely sent together with Ephesians. And there he says, he, talking about God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, bondage, slavery, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption also carries this idea of being set free from a debt we owed. And so later in Colossians, again, Paul's going to say, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The price we're told we owe for our sin is death and God's judgment. But that's like a debt and burden that hangs over us and causes us to live in fear 
of being judged by God and guilt for all we've done. And yet in Christ, Paul's saying, we've been set free from that debt and that burden because God's just canceled it. Or or rather, he's paid the debt himself and has forgiven us and set us free. And to be redeemed by Jesus is a cause for great joy. To be redeemed by Jesus is a cause for great joy. I, I remember when I was in college, my parents loaned me a certain amount of money for paying for my college. And as I was going through college, and and soon afterwards, I was working to pay them back this money that I owed them. And when it got down to a certain amount, they came to me one day, and they said, you don't owe us the money anymore. We're we're canceling that debt. Don't worry about it. They canceled the debt that was against me that I owed them. That was a great day. That was a happy day. I don't owe this anymore. And you see, the the greater the debt is that we owe, the greater the joy we experience when it is canceled and taken care of. This is why to to realize the depth of our sin as Christians shouldn't crush us. It should actually just lead us to greater joy as we see how great a debt God has paid for us in Christ. And and maybe you're you're someone who's here this morning and, and you've never experienced the type of freedom and joy that comes with being fully forgiven. Like you just kind of live under this weight of I can't do enough, I can't prove myself, I've got this guilt constantly. And, and today, you're, you're invited to come to Christ and find freedom and joy in knowing that he forgives you and cancels that debt fully. Or, or maybe you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, and yet you just live under this constant low-level sense of guilt over all the ways you continue to fail, continue to sin against God and against others. That is not ultimately a burden God wants us to carry because he's canceled the debt. You are free. You don't have to live under that constantly. But we should also see that redemption carries not only the idea of being freed from something, but also being freed for something. We've talked about this before here, Keystone. In Christ, we've been redeemed so that we might live under his rule and reign, following him and obeying him with our lives. That's part of what Paul is pointing out, I believe, in verse 10, where Paul says God's purpose in history, where everything is headed in the end, is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This seems to be the idea that the the purpose of history, where we're headed, is that Christ is going to rule and reign over everything, all creation, all his people. And as he does, we're ultimately going to flourish under his rule and reign. And even now, for those who've been redeemed, we're we're called to live as his followers, obeying him, living with him as our Lord, where we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him. And to know that as we do that, it actually brings life and flourishing to us. I I think a good image of this can be found uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've read that before. Where, where there's this, this image of uh, what Narnia looks like when it's under the, the rule of the wicked white witch. C.S. Lewis has this great line, he says multiple times, where we're told it was always winter and never Christmas. Always winter, never Christmas. The idea that to, to live under sin and Satan just brings despair and death, not life and joy. But then what, what happens in the book when Aslan shows up on the scene and starts to take back his rightful rule of Narnia. 
We're told spring comes. Things start to bloom. People start to sing. And the whole land of Narnia and all the people start to come alive under Aslan's rightful rule and reign. In a similar way, we've been redeemed from death and sin so that we might live under Christ's rule in our lives and actually come alive as we do, flourishing as we follow him and obey him with our lives. That, that's redemption from our angle, maybe, but now we can turn and say, okay, what, what about a redemption from God's angle? God's redemption of us displays the value of God's grace in Jesus. We're, we're told in verse 7, did you catch this, what, what the price was and is for our redemption. What did God pay for our redemption? Told through Jesus' blood. And, and because of Jesus' death for us on the cross, we're now recipients of God's riches and grace. He, I love this word. He lavishes his grace on us. Not just he gives it to us. Not just he says, ah, I guess you can have it. He lavishes. Here you go. Take more grace. It's there for you. There's no greater price that could be paid for our redemption than that of Christ's blood. And God paid that price, not ultimately to demonstrate how valuable we are, although that's part of it, but ultimately to demonstrate how valuable his son is. R Richard Cogan says, God redeemed us only because he is abundantly wealthy in grace. God's grace is his costly gift to us in Christ. Go, go back with me for a moment to the image of uh, college school loans and debt. And cut out all politics from this. This is not where I'm heading with this image, okay? Uh, so just get out of your mind. But, but, but the, average, uh, the average student who's taken out loans for college ends up owing $37,338 that they have to, to pay back as a debt. Imagine if that's what you owe. And someone just came along one day and said, hey, I'll pay for that. Writes a check, pays for it, and takes care of it. Ultimately, that would display how generous that person is and would lead us to praise that person for what they've done for us. Now let's up the stakes. The, the total amount of college debt that's owed by Americans is $1.77 trillion. I, I can't even wrap my mind around like how much money is that. Imagine that someone comes along and in a moment pays that all off. Like, how would we marvel at that person? They just solved the student debt crisis with one check. What, what the debt that we owe is far greater than $1.77 trillion because no amount of money could pay for it. Only Christ's blood could pay for it. And yet we're told with one act, the shedding of his blood, Jesus solved the sin crisis in our lives forever as a result of what he's done. Yes, you and I are valuable because of the price that was paid for us. And yet the ultimate value lies in the one who paid it for us. And so again, the greatness of our salvation is meant to lead us to delight, rejoicing in, we're free, and praise. Look at how valuable and great he is and what he's done for us. We might turn to, to angle three, which we can find in verses 11 through 14, where we find we have been assured of an inheritance by the Spirit. Paul tells us that in Christ, as God's children, we've got this inheritance for us. That, that That's actually in part what we've been predestined for, that we are given an inheritance by God. 
He hits on this in Romans 8 as well. You can look up the screen, I'll read it, where he says, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see what's, what's interesting there? To be God's son means that we will suffer in this life. Catch Paul saying that? We're, right? We're, we're going to suffer in this life. But to be God's son means we also have a inheritance that is stored up and waiting for us. It's, it's talking about the, the future God has promised us as a result of saving us. And yet Paul in Ephesians is talking in such a way where he's like, that, that, that inheritance is really already yours in many ways. It already has your name written all over it. We might, we might think of it in this way. My son's have an inheritance by virtue of being my sons, right? Their, their name is written in our will. That inheritance is already theirs. Now, it remains to be seen what that inheritance will actually be for them when the day comes. But even if I could know and I could tell them, here's what it's going to be, whatever amount of money and maybe a, our house or a car or whatever else it might be, they really couldn't grasp at this moment what that even means, Right? Maybe if I tried to put in an analogy for them and I told them like how many matchbox cars that could buy them, then they'd start to understand it. But, but, but they really couldn't wrap their minds around like how great this inheritance is. As a Christian, you have an inheritance. Your, your name is already written in God's will. This is why Peter bursts out with joy in 1 Peter where he says, listen, the words are similar to what we read this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Yet we really can't grasp what all that inheritance means for us. And we're left trying to use kind of our imagination and analogies to just get at it and get a glimpse of what it might mean. I love what an author, Juan Sanchez, says about this passage. He says, Our future inheritance will not only cause our worst experiences in this life to become distant memories, it will make even the most exotic places on earth and the finest moments of our lives pale in comparison. That, that quote makes me think about what, what are some of the best moments in my life and, there, and there's maybe a five-way tie for this. The, the day that I married Bree, our, our wedding day. The, the day I first held my son Oliver. The day I first held my son Jackson. The, the day the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, and the day I first tasted a Chipotle burrito. They're kind of all, I, I don't know which one wins, wins out. But, but the idea is that the, the inheritance, what God has promised us, is far greater than any of those moments, far greater than them all combined together, far greater than all the best moments of all our lives that we could put together in one place. Our inheritance is so much greater and better than any of that. The, the best moments in this life are just like a stale saltine cracker compared to what we will receive from God's hands in his presence with him. The, the best experiences, best vacations, best places we travel in this life are like a dirty old outhouse 
compared to what it will be like to live with God in a new heavens and new earth one day. Even our best imaginations and analogies fall so far short of the reality of what this will be one day. And the, the point is, no matter where you are at in your life right now, whether you are rich or poor, whether your circumstances are going really well or they are going awful, whether life is so much better than you thought it could be or it's worse than you ever imagined it could be, you and I have an inheritance that would blow our minds if we could see it right now. And yet it's also a challenge, especially for those who things are going well in this life, that we don't get so caught up in this world and in love with this world and all it offers to us that we turn from following Christ and give up that inheritance. Paul then says we're, we're assured of this inheritance by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that when we believe the gospel, we're sealed by the Spirit, he says. We're marked off as God's possession and, and, and we're protected by his Spirit from destruction. And then Paul also says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance or a, a down payment. That, that we're kind of like a sports athlete who signed a fully guaranteed contract. They get a certain amount up front, like a signing bonus. But then the rest is ultimately theirs. It's guaranteed, even though it's not in their bank account yet. Paul's saying because we have the Spirit living in us, he, he's the first taste of our inheritance. That even now in this life, there can be incredible times of communion with God and incredible delight and praise and enjoying his gifts in this world. And yet, ultimately, the future we have will make everything that we experience in this life, even the best moments, pale in comparison. Now, again, if that's from our angle, let's shift one last time to look from God's angle. God's gift of inheritance is a display of his abundant wealth. An inheritance benefits the person who receives it, but it exalts the one who gives it. This is why Paul says when we acquire, in verse 14, when we acquire possession of our inheritance, it will be to the praise of God's glory. That we are not given an inheritance because we're so great and deserving of it, but because God is so wealthy and generously gives it to us. When I was 22, I received an inheritance from one of my grandpas after he passed away. He left his five kids along with his 12 grandchildren an inheritance. I can tell you I did not receive that inheritance because I was worthy. I was not like the best grandchild in, by any means. I received it because of what my grandpa had and because he generously wrote me into his will. Y you and I re receive an inheritance from God, not because we deserve it or are worthy of it, but because God is so gracious and generous that he not only saves sinners, but then he writes their name into his will and says, now I'm going to give you this inheritance. We, we get the blessing. He gets the glory from it. And that might keep us rejoicing and praising him even as we walk through all sorts of difficulty in this life. See, it's, it's interesting to take what Paul writes in these verses and tie it back into the circumstances he's facing along with the circumstances the Ephesian Christians are likely facing. Remember we said last week, Paul's writing this letter from house arrest in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to be let out or if he's going to be killed. He's writing this letter to Ephesian Christians who are living in a culture that's hostile, that doesn't like them because of their beliefs and how they live, and they don't know what the future holds. 
I don't know that any of us would look at those circumstances and say, wow, you are so blessed by God. And you know what Paul's doing here is saying, let's, let's zoom out from our current circumstances and let's look at our eternal circumstances. That, that in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've been chosen by God. We've been redeemed by his son. We've got this incredible inheritance waiting for us. We are wealthy beyond imagination in Christ. I, I don't know about you, but it's frankly like embarrassing sometimes to me how much my joy and my desire to praise God can rise and fall with my circumstances. Right? Like, and, and I think that's natural in this life to some extent, but like, it can be embarrassing how much, right? Like, things are going well. I just ate a burger. Oh, praise God. Oh, I, I didn't sleep well last night. Oh, this is all. Right? Like, just anything, how easy it is for our circumstances to cause our joy to rise and fall. But when we remember and reflect on the greatness of our salvation, it can lead us to have joy and worship God in the midst of any circumstance. And this is the reason we ultimately exist. We've not been created by God and saved by him so that we might continue to live self-centered and self-focused lives. We're given life and salvation so that we can worship God with our lips, with our hearts, and with our lives. This is why God created you and I. This is why he's saved us. This is why we gather together week by week to praise him and to make much of him. And it's why we head out those doors into whatever calling you have Monday through Saturday to live it all ultimately for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who see how wonderful and amazing and incredible and stunning and whatever other adjective we can come up with. You are and your salvation of us is. We confess that so easily we fail to grasp just how great it is that you've saved us, that you've chosen us and redeemed us and promised us an inheritance. We so easily forget that in the midst of all the life circumstances that come our way. God, we, we ask that you might be gracious to us and, and that you might help our joy and our desire to praise you and make much of you be rooted not ultimately in how well things are going in this life or how poor they're going, but to be rooted in what you've done for us in saving us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.